in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland, senior writer for HowStuffWorks.com, and today's episode is going to be about the concept of net neutrality and the battle of the nature of the Internet itself. Now, this is a complicated topic, particularly since the Internet is a global system and different countries deal with this in different ways. As per usual, I'll be focusing on the United States in this episode, as that is where I am from. It is also the birthplace of the Internet itself. But keep in mind that net neutrality is an issue that is dealt with in various ways all around the world. Some countries are a little more um, uh, amenable to net neutrality than others. Some countries are infamously about as far away from net neutrality as you can get, like China, for example, and the Great Firewall there. But uh, we're going to focus mostly on the U.S. Also, I should add that I have covered this topic a few times before. If you'd like to listen to earlier episodes of Tech Stuff, in which I go into further detail for some of the concepts I'll talk about today, you can check out the following shows. The first is How Net Neutrality Works, which published way back in December 15th, 2008, That means that was in the first six months of tech stuff. And it shows, but it also has my former co-host Chris Paulette on there. And together we try to explain what net neutrality is all about and why it was such a contentious topic then. And even more so now, you could argue. Next, I have The War on Net Neutrality, which published on February 12th, 2014, so much more recent. And then almost a year later, on February 9th, 2015, we published the episode What is a Common Carrier, which talked about the FCC's decision to change the classification of Internet service providers into common carriers. Uh, if you want to know more about that, you can check out those episodes. I'll cover some of that today because it's impossible to talk about this topic and get you guys up to speed without covering that. But if you want to look at more specifics, check out those episodes. So uh, the battle of net neutrality has been making headlines again recently, which is the reason why I'm recording this. And I think it's a topic that not everyone totally grasps. So today we're going to cover the basic definitions for net neutrality. We're going to talk about the different entities that are in disagreement over net neutrality and their arguments and where things seem to be headed. And I should also point out that I record Tech Stuff episodes about a month before they come out. So it is entirely possible that some of the stuff I cover today will already be a bit out of date by the time the show publishes. But you can always tune in to watch me do a show live on twitch.tv slash techstuff, except for today when it isn't working. But most days it is working, and you can check me out. Just go to twitch.tv slash techstuff, and you'll find a schedule of when I stream and record the show. All right, enough of all that. Let's talk about the Internet. It's a little box with a light on top, and it's stored at the top of Big Ben, according to the IT crowd. All right, but before there was even an Internet, there was the ARPANET. Now, this was a project launched by ARPA, ARPA was the Advanced Research Projects Agency. Today, we call it DARPA. The D stands for Defense. So now it's the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. DARPA is in charge 
of research and development for the Department of Defense in the United States. And uh, they look at lots of different things that could potentially have use uh, in matters of defense. It doesn't necessarily have to be the primary purpose for it, but that's always part of it. So some other big DARPA initiatives besides the ARPANET include the driverless car initiative, which is what really got us into the early days of autonomous cars. Google's driverless car really got its start as a project under this. Uh, there was a team from Stanford that competed in a DARPA grand challenge, and uh, a lot of those folks went on to work for Google. But there are other ones as well, including some interesting stuff about ways to biohack a brain so that you can learn better. You'll have to check out Forward Thinking to learn more about that. But ARPA was really interested in developing technologies that would allow computer systems to communicate with each other. This would obviously increase the value and power of computer systems. If you could have different research facilities that are across the United States from one another, sending information back and forth via computer directly, then that would be a very powerful tool. And uh, ultimately, you could even see other applications, such as having a decentralized network, where if part of the network were to fail for some reason, let's say there was a massive power failure on part of the United States, the rest of the network could continue to function. But they needed to invent it. There wasn't anything in place at that time that could allow it. And so to do this, they had to hire a whole bunch of really smart people to design the algorithms and protocols that would allow for communication even between computers that didn't use the same programming languages. So in other words, if you had two different computers that worked on vastly different architectures and languages, you still had to be able to let them communicate with each other. So you had to invent kind of a common set of rules that both could follow and uh, have meaningful communication. So these techniques eventually would evolve into the foundation for the Internet itself. Um, although some of them would go through many evolutions before they it turned into the stuff that is, you know, kind of the, the software backbone for the Internet. Now, this entire project started here in the United States, and that's kind of why I mentioned the U.S. is where the Internet was born, because the ARPANET was sort of a predecessor to the Internet uh, and eventually was incorporated into the Internet in some extent, to some extent, rather, and uh, before it was dismantled officially. It was in the U.S. where engineers built this technology that makes the Internet possible. Though it's important to point out that other key elements of today's Internet, such as the World Wide Web, those originated in other countries. So it's not like the U.S. had a lock on all things Internet, but this is where it got its start. Now, one thing that's a relatively simple concept is just the basic idea of net neutrality. The term was popularized and possibly coined by Tim Wu, who is a law professor, although originally it was called network neutrality. He wrote a paper in 2003 about this idea, and he defined it in terms of assuming a non-discriminatory stance on Internet traffic at the Internet service provider level. So that's a fancy way of saying that Internet service providers, ISPs, the companies that actually provide the access to the Internet so that you can get on there and watch your YouTube videos and subscribe to your podcasts and do your work and send your email and all that kind of stuff, they wouldn't be allowed to discriminate against any type of traffic, no matter where it was coming from, if they were part of the Internet. That's the idea of net neutrality. Everyone plays fair. Everyone allows everyone else to 
to to send information across the networks. Otherwise, the, the internet breaks. If you don't have net neutrality, then you have all these different org, uh, uh, relationships between entities that make it difficult, if not impossible, to operate the internet in a reasonable fashion. So net neutrality in part is kind of a, a necessity, uh, at least at a certain level. Now, Lawrence Lessig, who's a Harvard law professor, said net neutrality was all about a single principle he called E to E, and that's E, the numeral two, and the letter E again. That stands for end to end. So in other words, he's saying it doesn't matter what entities you're talking about, whether it's a server and a server, whether it's an ISP and an ISP, whether it's a computer and a web server or a uh, a handheld device like a smartphone and an application server. It doesn't matter what the entities are. It should just be neutral. The Internet should be a dumb, neutral conduit for information, no matter where that information starts or ends its journey. Now, in practice, this means that you as an Internet user should be able to access any and all information without discrimination. Now, one little complication in this is that not all information is strictly legal, at least not in every country. Or it might be illegal to distribute the information. Maybe saying the information is illegal itself is a little weird, but it's illegal to distribute it. Uh, or as is more common in the United States, some uses of the Internet are illegal because they involve other illegal activities. So using the Internet to sell illegal goods like weapons or drugs without the proper licensing and the proper authorization, that would be a good example there. So those would be exceptions to this idea. But let's eliminate all the illegal stuff for the time being and just talk about legal data. We're going to make an assumption that the information we're talking about for most of this podcast is all on the up and up. So this isn't like stolen information. It's not uh, you know, illegal for other means. It's standard stuff and it should be treated neutrally. Net neutrality is a state in which all of this data gets treated the same way. None of it gets preferential treatment. None of it gets penalized. So it shouldn't matter what sort of device you use to access the Internet. Whatever it is, it should work just fine on every ISP. That's another aspect of net neutrality, whether it's a laptop, a desktop, tablet, smartphone, console, or other device. You should be able to connect it to the Internet, assuming, of course, that the device itself isn't breaking any laws or there's not some other issue like you're trying to overload the network or whatever. Net neutrality covers all of those different aspects. You should be able to access any information originating from any web server on any device on any network. Now, the history of net neutrality has been a really bumpy one. Back in 2007, the Associated Press published accusations that Comcast, a major internet service provider here in the United States, had been blocking some customers from using BitTorrent software to download videos and that Comcast really wanted to stifle anything that competed with its own video-on-demand service. So using BitTorrent by itself is not illegal. You could use BitTorrent to download perfectly legal content. Let's say that someone has produced a video that isn't, uh, isn't violating copyright law. It's their own original work, and they've decided they want to distribute it via BitTorrent. BitTorrent is just a peer-to-peer -peer sharing service. It has nothing to do with the actual content, sort of like the Internet itself. 
you wouldn't say the internet is all about sending illegal stuff from one place to another. Even though a lot of people use the internet to do that, that's not what the internet actually is. The same is true for BitTorrent. BitTorrent is a method of sending information using peer-to-peer networks. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're using it to steal stuff. Well, Comcast was being accused of throttling the data transfers of people using BitTorrent software. Essentially, the accusation said Comcast detected these customers, Comcast customers, were using BitTorrent software. They were connecting with other BitTorrent users, and so they would find their connection slowed down dramatically whenever they were using BitTorrent. And meanwhile, Comcast was pushing its own video-on-demand service, saying, hey, you should just buy the videos straight from us. Public interest groups would eventually get in touch with the FCC here in the United States. The FCC kind of, sort of, oversaw ISPs. And I say kind of, sort of, because at the time, there wasn't a real strong argument to be made that the FCC had that sort of domain. It was sort of in their domain, but there were no formal laws or regulations that put the FCC in charge. Now, the FCC argued that Comcast, which was supposed to act as a neutral carrier of information, was using anti-competitive practices to suppress a competing service. And so there was a vote, and the FCC passed a three-to-two vote against Comcast. So FCC's board has, you know, five members, and what they, they would vote on these issues about whether or not a company had violated some rule or regulation and then determine what, sh- what steps should be taken in response to that. In this case, it was a close vote, three to two, uh, two Democrats and a Republican voted against Comcast. It was actually a majority Republican board at that time. So the FCC said to Comcast, Hey, stop it, you guys. But they didn't fine Comcast. They just demanded that Comcast halt this behavior, that they stop throttling customers. Comcast's response was, you aren't the boss of me, and I'm going to sue you. And that's exactly what happened. So this lawsuit lasts several years. And in 2010, a federal court dismissed the FCC's earlier ruling. Now, why did they do that? Well, the FCC was claiming that under Title I of a Communications Act, they would be able to do this, but it really was a pretty loose interpretation of the law. And the federal court said the FCC just did not have the authority to slap Comcast's wrists in the first place. So even though Comcast wasn't fined, the uh, essentially what the federal court was saying was you can't even reprimand Comcast. You don't have that authority. You're not you're not in charge of this. Uh, it would be like someone you know telling you to that you need to pull over for speeding, but they're not a police officer. It would be weird, and it's not really their job. Well, later that year, the FCC passed some official regulations on net neutrality. Uh, so essentially what the FCC was trying to do was say, hey, we to- totally have the authority to do this. They were attempting to codify rules they had set up for realsies. But then Verizon sued the FCC and said, you can't do that. You don't have the authority to set these regulations. And uh, you're passing rules that you don't get to pass, so stop it. Now, the federal court agreed once again with the industry and said the FCC does not have that authority. Now, eventually, 
This led to a lot of pressure on the FCC to create real rules for net neutrality. And there was talk for a while of something that was more of a conciliatory approach. But the Obama administration in 2014 put a lot of pressure on the FCC to draw up more stringent rules about net neutrality. And so that eventually led to the Open Internet Order of 2015. I'm going to talk more about that later in this episode and give you more details about what that open Internet order really was all about. Uh, but the important thing to remember right now is that the industry responded by challenging this order and trying to take it to courts. But so far, the courts have upheld the FCC's ruling. They said that everything is technically legal here with a recent court decision declining to rehear the arguments. So. Essentially, the industry appealed this decision. The, a higher court said, no, we're not going to bother listening to this because we agree with the lower court. Or rather, we don't see a need to rehear this case. And a lot of big ISPs got a little mad about this. And there's now a move to move this case all the way up to the Supreme Court. Now, in addition, with a change of administrations in the United States government, you may have heard something about that over the last year or so. We're looking at yet another revision of the rules, but I'm going to get into all of that a bit later in this podcast. Now, the reason all of this is important is because the Internet is a network of networks. That's how it started, and that's what it is now, although the details have changed significantly. The network of networks doesn't work exactly the same way it did when the Internet was a brand new little baby. You could make a persuasive argument that the old definition of net neutrality isn't really an accurate argument to make these days. And that's because many entities like Google or Amazon or Netflix have their systems embedded into the infrastructure on the Internet in ways that weren't the case in the early days. So this gets back to Internet service providers, these networks that allow the connections of customers, whether those customers are people like you and me if they're businesses, if they're other ISPs that are lower down on the chain, they they're, these are the companies that allow the interconnections on the Internet. So let's take a look at how things used to be and compare it to how things are now to kind of understand why the argument of net neutrality is changing a little bit. First of all, no one owns the Internet as a whole because the Internet is a bunch of different components owned by a bunch of different companies. So... It's it's not like a car where you could have one person be the owner or even one person be the manufacturer. It's a it's a huge complicated machine. And different entities own different parts of this machine. No one has the say of how it should be uh run. Like there's no one who has controlling interest in the internet. But the actual uh, infrastructure is owned by a bunch of different companies and other entities. Internet service providers run the networks that allow customers to connect, transmit, and receive data over the Internet. So if each ISP was totally independent, as in it was its own network, and it did not have any connectivity to other networks. So this is not an Internet. This is just a, a, sta a single network. Well, you would only be able to access the stuff that was connected through that specific ISP. So let's say you are a customer of ISP A. But Netflix was only on ISP B. Well, that would mean you wouldn't be able to watch Netflix. Fortunately, the Internet is the network of all these networks together. And so they connect to each other 
through network access points or NAPs, NAPs. Man, a NAP sounds good right about now. Well, NAPs are exchanges that allow traffic to switch from one network to another in its journey from origin to destination. So using the internet, you could watch Netflix even if you were on ISPA. Netflix is on ISPB. When you send that request, it goes through one of these network access points, switches over from one network to another, gets the go-ahead from the server on ISPB. The information is sent back more or less in a reverse path from the one that your request took, keeping in mind that the way the Internet works, the information branches out in all sorts of different ways. It's not like it's a, a single pathway from point A to point B. And you would still be able to watch it. That's in the old days. Uh, these NAPs are exchanges that allow all that journey all to happen, you know, for the data to switch from one network to another. Uh, routers are the devices that take care of traffic control, sending data where it's needed and not sending it where it is not needed. That's equally important because you don't want to have superfluous data running around the Internet gumming things up. There is a limited carrying capacity to the Internet. Uh, it's huge, but, you know, if you were to send an enormous amount of data to a very specific section of the Internet at a specific time, you could overload things. You could make stuff slow down. You could make systems crash. So routers are very important to make sure that that data is going where it needs to go and only where it needs to go. In the early days of the Internet, there were hundreds of companies that were interconnected to create this network. And you, the, the distribution of traffic was pretty, you know, decent. It was pretty even. There weren't, uh, a few, just a few entities dominating traffic across the internet. It was distributed fairly evenly. And net neutrality was a real concern because if someone didn't play ball, it kind of ruined it for everyone else. Well, I got more to say about the basics of the internet and how net neutrality plays into it. But before I jump into more of that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Okay, now, for the internet to work, these various internet service providers have to agree to carry each other's traffic. And typically we call this process peering, where... Companies will peer with one another, whether it's two ISPs or an ISP and an edge provider, edge providers being like the, the content providers that are creating the stuff that people are actually trying to access. So the uh, ISPs, you can think of that as like almost like a highway system and the con- uh, the edge providers being like all the stuff along the highways that you want to go to. And peering involves drawing up an agreement where the various entities in question will allow for the transfer of data coming from one source to pass over to the other source, from one network to pass over into the other network. Uh, basically, if you were a smaller internet service provider, you would have to pay a certain amount per chunk of data up to larger internet service providers that are further upstream of you. If a smaller ISP gets big enough, if it grows over time, it could end up creating that same arrangement with smaller ISPs that are downstream of it. And it could arrange for a more favorable rate with the larger upstream ISPs if it got big enough. It could have the leverage to say, hey, let's rework this deal. Or even if they got big enough, arrange for free transfers of data if the size and traffic between the two ISPs is similar enough. 
All right, so let's say that you are the head of a big old internet corporation. And your company has assets in several different parts of the internet. So your computers and connections make up part of the internet's backbone and data crosses over your machines all the time. So you are actually part of the infrastructure that information uses in order to get from point A to point B. Some of that data comes from you. So you happen to have stuff within your own network that you can deliver to people who are on your network. Uh, you have your own servers, services. Maybe you have like an email client, maybe some website sites. But a lot of that data actually comes from other sources, including people who are in direct competition with you. Now, wouldn't it be nice if you're the head of this large corporation, if you could steer people to using your own in-house products, like your email services, your websites, etc., rather than a competitor's services. You could have people use your email client, visit your streaming video service, and go to your web pages for news. You'd collect revenue from that through ads served against the services. You'd end up saving money because people are coming to you rather than you going to them. You could discourage people from using competitors' products as a result. Or... You could do something else. Maybe you charge your competitors a hefty premium to get access to customers on your network. So you're the head of ISPA, and ISPB comes to you and says, hey, we've got a lot of customers who want to access these servers. Those servers are part of your network. What do we have to do to make that happen? And you say, well, uh, you'll have to pay me. Uh, if you don't pay me, I'll make sure it's a super slow connection. And your customers will be able to access the information, but it'll be a very negative experience. They will hate it. It'll take forever. It'll buffer a lot for streaming video. Or, you know, you pony up the cash and then everyone's going to get super fast internet access uh, from me. It's going to be awesome. So um, uh, if you were to say, hey, Netflix, I'm happy to send people season two of Fuller House. But if you want them to have a good experience, you got to pony up that cash so the streams get the fast lane of traffic. Otherwise, I'm just going to throw all that data, keep it on my own network, keep everything nice and clear, and your customers will experience lots of buffering issues. And then everyone's going to say, hey, why are we even using this ISP? Let's use this other ISP because I hear that I can watch Fuller House with less buffering. And Jesse is going to say, oh, mercy. Well, how am I going to see that if I'm not logged in? But that would violate the spirit of net neutrality. If you gave your own data preferential treatment, and allowed it to stream faster to customers, and you throttled anything from your competitors, then people using your service wouldn't have fair equal access to all information on the internet when using your network. And that's how a lot of people frame the net neutrality argument these days, that there's just this one big problem with that framing. It's not really an accurate description of what's actually happening on a large scale. Over time, a relatively small number of companies began to dominate the amount of traffic that was moving across the internet. In other words, a, a smaller number of companies were creating a larger amount of the data that gets shuffled around across the internet. Big companies like Google, Netflix, and other major players began to establish what are called content delivery networks, or CDNs. Now, a content delivery network is a network of computer servers that are within an ISP's network, and they can deliver specific content directly to that ISP's customers without the need for traveling across a peered network from another ISP. So going back to ISPA versus ISPB, if you build a CDN in both of those ISP's networks, 
so you've got one in ISPA and one in ISPB, those respective internet service provider customers can access your services very, very quickly because you've you've placed them close to the destination, close being a relative term because we're talking about uh, you know, networks which are not really it's not analogous to a physical location. But if you have it within that ISP, there are fewer gateways to have to pass through. So you speed up the process. You create a better user experience, especially for stuff that uses a lot of data and needs to stream very quickly. So stuff like ultra-high definition video, you obviously want that to get to your customers as quickly as it can. Uh, otherwise, you got lots of buffering issues, and that's not a very good experience from a consumer point of view. So if you're someone like YouTube or Netflix, you want to – Establish these uh, CDNs, these content delivery networks, inside as many major ISPs as you possibly can to get uh, that information to to customers much more quickly. Uh, so let's compare the old way of doing things with the new way. So back in the early days of the Internet, your web company servers would be connected to ISPA. And your customers would access your service by connecting to your web server over the Internet. Any of your customers who are also ISPA customers would have a pretty direct connection because you're all on the same network. But if I were your customer and I used ISPB, my request would have to pass through a peered connection between my ISP and your ISP before it reached your web server. And any data you sent back to me would likewise have to go through that peered connection. And if my ISP and your ISP got into a spat, that could become a problem. But CDNs allow entities to build web servers within different ISPs so you get that direct connection and you can bypass this need for those peered connections. Companies like Google, Netflix, and Facebook all have private CDNs to help them get this data to you quickly. There are also other CDNs that are run by other companies that essentially rent out space to tenants. So let's say that you have a big CDN within... Comcast's network and you say, hey, if you want your service to get to Comcast customers faster, you can rent out space on our machines, which are part of this content delivery network within Comcast's network, and that'll get to the Comcast customers smoothly. You just have to pay us and we'll host your stuff. So why does this matter? Because the old argument about net neutrality doesn't quite work in a world where 30 companies provide half of all the Internet's traffic. Think about that. Just a little more than two dozen companies comprise half of the Internet's traffic, with Netflix leading the charge. Most of those companies operate CDNs, or they partner with one of those companies I just talked about that have their own CDNs, and you don't have to worry about ISPB throttling stuff coming from ISPA because both B and A have all that information within their own respective networks. The fast lane argument is less of a problem than it used to be because we already have this established hierarchy of major companies. That in itself is its own problem because a lot of people point out by having these enormous established companies that are able to take advantage of this, it discourages competition from smaller companies that don't have those same advantages. So a different problem is on the rise, and this one's more related to uh, 
well, it's kind of related to the fast lane issue, but with some twists. The big ISPs that have swallowed up most of the smaller ones have a real tight grip on access to the internet. They would very much like to build their own CDNs. So Comcast has talked about this, making their own content delivery networks within their, their networks. And then they would charge companies to use those CDNs. So in other words, they're doing kind of what I was talking about with those other companies that would say, hey, we'll rent out space to you. Except this would be the actual internet service provider allowing that. So kind of having your cake and eating it too. If you were to launch an internet startup company and you felt like you needed to have that super fast access to Comcast customers, uh, you like maybe you're trying to deliver that ultra high definition videos experience. You might need to be in a CDN to have reliable access to an ISP's customers, but you're not big enough to build your own one. So you can't be like Google or Facebook or Netflix. You aren't, haven't been around long enough. You can't establish that. So you have to cut a deal with someone who already has a CDN and you have to rent space there, essentially. The result is that internet service providers could be getting paid twice for all the data going across their networks. They get one fee from their subscribers, their actual regular customers who are consuming data, and another fee from the companies that are providing data. So you can charge the, the for the same message two times. It's like the old days with telegrams. In fact, this story eventually goes all the way back to the telegram days. If you listen to the uh, common carrier episode, you learn more about it. And it really, it goes back even further than that. It goes to the railroad days. But telegram days, you know, there were arguments about telegram companies charging once to send a message and once for the receiving of the message. So each message was getting billed twice. People said that's not very fair. Well, the same thing is kind of showing up here with this concept of an ISP operating its own content delivery network. So how can we avoid such a future? Well, one thing that would be nice is more competition in the internet service provider space. Competition would push internet service providers to stay nimble and they wouldn't be able to throw their weight around so much because if they did, customers could say, well, I don't want to work with this company anymore. I'm going to go and switch to their competitor. Who and their competitors not engaged in this kind of behavior. So that that threat of competition, that threat of losing customers to someone else that's not doing the messed up stuff you're doing would help a lot. But we don't have a whole lot of competition, particularly here in the United States. So short of breaking up companies or placing hefty regulations on how Internet service providers operate, this is a long shot. Now, as I record this podcast... There are hearings in the United States Congress that could overturn large portions of the 2015 Open Internet Order. There's also discussions within the FCC itself that would overturn this decision, this 2015 decision. Uh, so the one within the FCC is titled Restoring Internet Freedom, uh, which, um, you know, I... I like there was a, a tweet I saw. I wish I could remember the person who said it, but the tweet said essentially anytime you see a large corporation using the word freedom within some legislation or any entity within politics using the word freedom within its legislation, it usually means freedom for big companies, not for actual citizens, which uh, is a little cynical and a lot true. Bottom line, Restoring Internet Freedom Act is some loaded language, but then so is open internet. So what's actually going on? Well, back in 2015, 
The FCC Reclassified Broadband Internet Access Service, or BIAS, that's not me being biased, that's just what the acronym says, Broadband Internet Access Service, they reclassified them as telecommunications services, which meant that companies in that field would be governed by the rules of Title II of the Communications Act of 1934. Now, you remember before the FCC tried to... uh to uh, enforce regulations under Title I of the Communications Act. But that didn't really give the FCC the authority they needed to do that. And that's why those decisions got overturned in federal courts. So FCC said, well, that's fine. We'll just, well, we have to reclassify these companies, these broadband internet access services as telecommunications companies. That'll put them under Title II, which we have the authority to oversee. That has been established by law. And this was something that people had been bandying about for a few years, but the FCC hadn't really taken a move on it because it was seen as being a little extreme. However, the Obama administration was putting in a lot of pressure on the FCC. So eventually they did do this. Now, these rules establish the role of common carriers. And again, that concept dates back to the railroad days. Essentially, the rules said you could not establish different prices for different people. So you couldn't charge one group of people $5 a ticket just because of who they were. And then a different group of people, you would charge $10 a ticket or $15 a ticket just because of who they were. Nor were you allowed to discriminate against people and refuse them service if they were following the rules and they had the money for a ticket. So if I show up to your train and I got $5 in hand and I'm not outwardly breaking any rules, you would not be allowed to say, oh, no, I'm sorry, you can't ride this train. And the reason for that was because the railroads have been uh, determined to be common carriers. They were too important for the good of the United States to operate as completely private entities. Uh, same thing is true for telecommunications because you had all these different communications lines that were stretching from state to state and you had state governments that were kind of getting into arguments with one another and then the federal government stepped in and said, all right, here's the deal. You can't do this because it's too important to the health of the country. So this was kind of another step on that, on that, uh, pathway to classify internet as that same sort of, uh, experience or service. Basically, you have to play nice. Now, putting bias operators under Title II gave the FCC authority to enforce rules. They could actually enforce the stuff that they were creating. They could create rules and they could enforce them because Title II gives them that authority as long as it's classified under Title II. Uh, so that allowed them to get around those issues they had had earlier in net neutrality cases where – the courts kept on saying, hey, you like totally don't have the authority to do that thing. By reclassifying bias companies as telecommunications companies, the FCC gained that authority over them. Now, the first provision in the open Internet order established that bias operators would not be allowed to block access to legal content, apps, services or non-harmful devices subject to reasonable network management. So an ISP like AT&T couldn't deny customers the ability to connect to a specific brand of laptop on their networks or block any specific content from a competitor because of this specific rule. The second provision stated that bias companies couldn't throttle any content purposefully barring any network management issues. So in other words, 
AT&T couldn't say, all right, yeah, you can access that service that's on Comcast's network, but we're just going to put the brakes on it so that it's really unpleasant and there's no incentive to use that service. That was against the rules according to the second provision. So it wouldn't allow a company to prioritize its own services over that of others, the idea being that any consumer would have equal opportunity to use whichever service he or she preferred across the entirety of the Internet. It might be the same as their ISPs or it might be someone else. The third provision stated that bias operators couldn't operate with paid prioritization. So in other words, you're not supposed to have like a super secret VIP line that people could pay to use and get the fast track to consumers. And you may have heard some some talk about this particular one. Ideas like, you know, I run a ultra high definition streaming service, so I want to pay a little extra money to the ISPs to make sure that my traffic is going to consumers um, in a in a fast lane. This is the big fast lane discussion. Now, this rule ends up being sidestepped by that content delivery network issue I talked about earlier. If you build content delivery networks within ISPs, then you kind of end up not having to worry about this as much. Uh, but then only the the entities that have huge amounts of money can afford to do that in the first place. And unlike the other two rules, there's no exception here for reasonable network management. So for the other two provisions, if you are needing to manage your network because of uh, an imbalance in traffic, you are allowed to break those first two provisions, pr- providing you can actually say, I had to do it because otherwise our our network traffic would have been so great as to cause a, an overall collapse, and that's a bad thing. The third provision, you couldn't even do that. Uh, there was no rule for that. So on top of those provisions, the rule stated that bias companies couldn't, quote, uh, unreasonably interfere with or unreasonably disadvantage customers' abilities to select, access, and use lawful content, services, and devices. They also couldn't unreasonably interfere with or unreasonably disadvantage edge providers from making lawful content, apps, services, or devices. So in other words, uh, they couldn't, couldn't meddle with either the content or the devices that were moving across their individual networks. Now, today is a very different world than the one in 2015 when the FCC passed those rules. And the current administration in the United States is looking to reverse those 2015 decisions. That includes reclassifying bias companies again, this time removing them from the classification of telecommunications companies and thus pulling them out from under Title II. This would put the Federal Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, in charge of overseeing claims of privacy violations or anti-competitive practices among bias operators. So the FCC would no longer be in charge. Instead, it would be the FTC. Now, critics of this move say that the FTC has very little power, it's a small organization, uh, and it isn't much of a check against bias operators. It doesn't really stand as a threat at all or uh, a measure to keep these companies behaving properly. For one thing, the FTC doesn't have the authority to set regulations, so they can't they can't make any rules. All they can do 
is go after companies if it becomes clear that those companies are not following their own terms of service with customers. So if you if your ISP is AT&T and uh, you are upset with how things are going, if the way AT&T is performing is not in direct violation of its terms of service, the FTC can't really do anything about it because the FTC can't set up the rules. It gives a lot of power to the corporations. That's the complaint a lot of critics are having right now. The They're saying this is a bad move because – it's giving the people or the entities, I should say, that we're trying to make sure play by the rules. It's giving them the ability to make up the rules. So there's no sense in the whole making sure they play by the rules. If you give the person the ability to write all the rules, of course they're playing by them because they're the ones defining the rules as they go along. It could be like an enormous game of Calvin Ball. It's for the three Calvin and Hobbes fans that are out there. All right, I got more to cover in the end of this episode, but before I get into that, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. According to the new chairman of the FCC, Ajit Pai, the 2015 order, quote, put at risk online investment and innovation, threatening the very open Internet it purported to preserve. Investment in broadband networks declined. Internet service providers have pulled back on plans to deploy new and upgraded infrastructure and services to consumers, end quote. So Pai's argument is that because these regulations were in place, ISPs were disinclined. They had no incentive to invest in their own infrastructure. I mean, why would they? They were being regulated. Now, I have to add that I failed to find a lot of research that actually substantiates this claim. Uh, for one thing, there's just a lack of research all around. It's, it's not that I'm finding conflicting reports rather than there's just not a lot of definitive research to either support or refute it. According to IT World, in 2015, broadband networks invested $76 billion in upgrading networks. Now, this was a slight decrease from 2014 numbers, but it wasn't a dramatic decline. In fact, 2014 was the highest total spent on infrastructure over the records of the Internet. 2015 was the second highest. So it's not like 2015 numbers dropped precipitously. They dipped. So it's unclear if there really is a risk to investment and innovation. There might be, but we don't have enough information there. There's not enough data to show an actual trend yet. So I'm not saying the FCC chairman's conclusion is necessarily wrong. It could be right. I'm just saying it's not supported by enough evidence to be a firm conclusion. It may well be that the open Internet order is doing exactly what Pi says it is doing, but it doesn't seem like we actually have the information to draw that conclusion yet. So what we really need is more research to see, are these companies pulling back from investing in their infrastructure? Have they been uh, given an incentive to not invest back in the infrastructure? Is that actually harming consumers? We don't know. There's not been enough data yet. The proposal that Pi has drafted also says that the 2015 rules were established, quote, despite virtually no quantifiable evidence of consumer harm, end quote. 
So here's Pi saying, look, you're, these were rules that were looking for a problem that didn't exist. So it's a solution searching for a problem. And since there was no evidence of any consumers actually being harmed, then the rules aren't really protecting anybody. And that's, that's an interesting argument to say, like, if there's nothing wrong happening, then why do we have to make regulations? Uh, granted, if the regulations just exist but aren't forcing any ongoing expense from the government, you might argue, well, where is the problem? If we've established the rules, if someone violates the rules, then we have, we have something to go to. But you could also leave the argument of, well, if no one's violating the rules ever, why do we have the rules there? Um, I would counter that the decreased competition in the internet that service provider market in the United States is, is pretty bad. Uh, this goes all the way down to the consumer facing level. So we're talking like the backbone companies all the way down to the ones that we as customers, individuals in the United States would use for our internet service provider. So for example, where I live, I have one choice if I want to have broadband speeds. Uh, the next fastest choice I would have at my, my, uh, uh, option is below broadband speed if we define it at the current standard in the United States as 25 megabits per second. That's how the FCC defined it in 2015. So if I look at my choice of internet service providers, I only have one option if I want to hit broadband speeds. Everything else is sub broadband speed. That's it. That means one company has a monopoly on broadband speeds in my neighborhood. And that puts customers in my neighborhood at a disadvantage. We have no alternative. If our ISP chooses to engage in behavior we find unacceptable, we don't have another option to go to that can provide us at uh, Internet access at that same speed. We might choose to go with a slower speed, and which almost feels like we're punishing ourselves, uh, in order to not work with that ISP. But... The ideal situation would to have, would be to have a lot of competing internet service providers with comparable capability of delivering fast internet service to multiple customers. This would end up, uh, giving companies the incentive to innovate, to find ways to set themselves apart from their competitors to attract more customers. That way customers are the ones who benefit. If there are no competitors, there's no incentive for a company to do that. And customers, as a result, often suffer because there's nowhere else to go. You got one choice to go to. It's kind of like the old uh, Soviet Union where if you wanted a specific product, you had to go to one place and that was the one product you could get and there were no other alternatives. It's kind of like that. Uh, in that case, of course, in the Soviet Union, it was all state-controlled, not corporate-controlled, but Otherwise, it's very similar. Net neutrality and related policies are supposed to protect against this kind of behavior, particularly in a world where competition is scarce. Now, if we lived in a world where we did have that fierce competition among ISPs in markets across the world, it might not even be an issue. Net neutrality might not ever be talked about because the market would end up demanding that the uh, the companies that that benefit consumers the most would be the most successful. That gives, again, those incentives to the other companies to follow suit. No one would be doing stupid stuff <laughs> that that limited what their cu customers could do because they would lose those customers. But that's not the world we live in. I can't 
just switch from one to the other. And most people can't either because they don't have those options. There are too few ISPs, and we've seen numerous stories of how companies have tried to consolidate power even more through various mergers and acquisitions. Comcast was trying to buy Time Warner for a while. That would have consolidated two massive Internet service providers, and that would have meant even less competition in the marketplace. Now, the companies were saying this is going to be great for consumers, but honestly, when you don't have a lot of competition, it's not that great for consumers because why Why should there be? Your consumers aren't going to go anywhere. They have no other place to go. So do what works best to maximize your profits and not worry so much about the consumer response. That's That's the real issue there. It's pretty ugly. So what do I think is going to actually happen from all of this with the FCC moving in this direction? Well, I'm recording this in early May. It's going to be mid-May when the FCC starts to move on any sort of decisions. And uh, meanwhile, we've got the case being pushed toward the Supreme Court to be heard. So we've got two different avenues of attack against net neutrality. First, I think the Supreme Court will decline to hear the case brought against the FCC and its classification of ISPs under Title II. I think that case is not going to make it all the way to the Supreme Court. And I think the reason for that is the court's going to decline to hear the case because the FCC is already considering reclassifying uh, ISPs again and rolling those rules back. So I don't think the Supreme Court will hear the case because they're going to see that this argument is essentially moot. And there's no reason to to look at the case if the FCC is going to change the rules back anyway. So I suspect we will see regulations rolled back from ISPs. Deregulating is a frequent message from conservative governments. Uh, I'm not optimistic about that helping out the average consumer, but I have no trouble believing it'll be a huge help to the enormous businesses that are ISPs. Now, if this happens, it will likely take some time as just the process for making these rules is laborious and typically involves inviting input from the general public. And the last time that happened, uh, the general public overwhelmed the FCC's systems with input largely in favor of net neutrality. So we'll likely see uh, a similar response led by various entities on the Internet, like the Electronic Frontier Foundation pushing for uh people to speak out in favor of net neutrality. I don't think it's going to ultimately matter in the long run. I think we're going to see those regulations rolled back, at least to some extent, maybe not as far back as what people are proposing right now. But uh, I don't think that ISPs will be under Title II classification for much longer, maybe a year. That's my guess. This could lead to another discussion about fast lanes, ultimately down the line, but Really, as I mentioned before, it really comes down to those uh, content distribution networks. The real fear is that big companies like Netflix, which have billions of dollars, will be able to flourish while small competing companies that could potentially be of great interest to consumers uh, can't get on that same page because they can't afford to essentially pay what amounts to a toll to Internet access providers. Netflix can afford that, but a startup company that might be a huge hit if it had a chance, uh, might not be able to ever get off the ground because it can't afford to play ball the way the big companies can. 
Now the big companies don't want to play ball. They they're also big companies. They don't they don't want to spend money they don't have to spend. So uh, I don't want to come out here saying like Netflix and Google and Amazon and Facebook they're all the good guys and the ISPs are the bad guys. Uh, really, these are all entities that are trying to minimize expenses and maximize profits as best they can. And ultimately, we're the consumers. We're the ones who get squeezed by this from both sides. So don't take me the wrong way. I'm not trying to say that Netflix and Google and all those guys are, are angels and the ISPs are devils. It's more like these are businesses. They have a purpose, and that purpose is to make money. It is not a moral judgment. It is just that's the purpose of a corporation is to make money, and we as consumers are the ones affected by this. If we see a definitive ruling between the time I record this episode and the time it publishes, I'll be sure to jump back in the studio and record an update to this episode. And this is the part where it will go. It will go in this section or right after it. So if you don't hear an update after this paragraph, it's because nothing definitive has happened yet or I forgot. One of the two. One of the two things happened. So that's it for this episode of Tech Stuff. Remember, you can get in touch with me through email. Let me know of any suggestions you have for guests on the show, for topics I might want to cover, for anything that you think deserves an update, like net neutrality. If there's another topic I've covered in the past that you feel needs to have a little refresher, let me know. The address for our show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can say hi through Twitter or Facebook. The handle for the show at both of those is Tech Stuff HSW. Remember, you can tune in to watch me stream shows live on twitch.tv slash techstuff. Visit the site to see my schedule. And I'll talk to you guys again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 